Welcome to the A-Game Podcast with Nick LaMagna, digging into the minds and experiences of some of today's brightest entrepreneurs in real estate and business, along with Hollywood stars, UFC fighters, and your favorite rock bands. People that have figured out how to overcome obstacles, take chances, live boldly, and no matter what they do, they always bring their A-game. All right, my guest today on the A-Game Podcast is my Long Island Paisan, John Gelder. He is an absolute beast. People sleep on him. They don't even know what he's doing over there. He's new to the podcast circuit, so we got him while he's fresh. But everybody's going to start having him on and hearing his story. Over 500-something units now at this point. Lived in Long Island, had his W-2 job, invested in out-of-state properties before it was the cool thing to do while he lived at home or lived in his parents' basement has a construction background, has a home inspection background now, and slowly just built it up by doing the same things everybody wishes they did. You know, having those properties that just bring in cash flow, eventually bring in equity, doing the burst strategy, some flips, some rentals, and going into some bigger things, getting into syndication, getting into some multifamily, and was able to replace his W-2 income that he worked for for years with some of his passive income, and has drastically scared that up within the last three years. So you want to hear a guy who literally started, blue collar guy, blue collar area, worked his way up against all the odds and just created an amazing success story that's only the beginning, who's just a good dude. You could just tell right from the beginning, his energy is awesome. He's humble. He's willing to share. He's an open book. He's my kind of guy. I'm not just saying that because he's a Long Island guy, but shout out to Christian Chuli and Connects for putting that together. You guys are going to love this story. We get into some mindset stuff. We talk about his portfolio. We talk about all the things he's doing, the ins and outs of what he looks for, some of the things you should be aware of, some of the tips and tricks to help you get some shortcuts and safety nets. I think you will absolutely love this episode, and I really appreciate you coming on. As always, this episode is sponsored in part by Naked Warrior Recovery CBD and by Nationwide Business Capital Group. So go on nicknicknick.com slash links. Write to Marianne at Nationwide Business Capital Group. Tell her the A-Game podcast sent you, and you want some money for your real estate deals. If you are new, inexperienced, have no money, have no credit, it's totally okay. Have the conversation with her. She will figure out what she can get you and get you to start doing deals. If you already have experience, don't be afraid to reach out as well because she can get you more money and cheaper money for some of the most competitive rates and terms out there. Again, mention the A-Game podcast and put promo code A-Game in when you go to buy some CBD from Naked War Recovery. Link on our bio as well and our affiliates link. William Brandon, he's a Navy SEAL and an awesome guy and will give you 20% off any and all CBD products. Thank you, everybody, for supporting this podcast. Please listen, like, subscribe, share. It all helps. It all goes a long way so we can keep doing this. And again, at nicknicknick.com slash links, it's all the ways to connect with me on social media and all the ways to subscribe to this podcast, whether to listen to it or grab it on YouTube. So please, please, please do that. Like posts, comment on posts, join our Facebook group and tell me what you want to hear, what you want to learn, who you want us to have on. And I'm happy to answer any and all questions on my Facebook group as well. And if you want a free checklist on how to bring more value to your buyers, whether you're a real estate agent, wholesaler, or broker, go to nicknicknick.com slash biggerpockets for a free checklist on how to bring more value to your buyers. And again, support the locals, Ally Quinta, John Menimal Beneducci, Bill Allen, all the people that have been coming on, Brandon Turner, David Green, Chris Weidman for their podcast, their social medias. It's been an amazing journey. People have been absolutely awesome and I could not be happier for the relationships I've made. I apologize if I have not gotten back to you and you've reached out to me. Please, if you have and I haven't, just text me, 516-540-5733 and we can talk about how we can work together, whether that's me selling you investment properties, you buying investment properties from me or us finding a way to partner in some way, shape or form and have a conversation on how that works. Really appreciate it. You're going to love this interview. Thank you, John Gelder, for coming on. Thank you, Chris Chan, truly, for putting us together. Hey, Game Podcast. Have a great day. All right. My guest today on the A-Game Podcast is a real estate investor, an entrepreneur, and a business owner. And most importantly, my Long Island brother, a native of Long Island, New York. He is the founding and managing partner of GMG Investments Properties, investing full-time after a 22-year career in construction and a background as a licensed home inspector. He currently owns 85 doors and is an LP in an astounding 460 units. He has personally executed over $15 million in real estate transactions and is a proud father of two girls and is looking to bring his amazing story and Long Island energy here to the A-Game Podcast. Welcome, John Geldert. Thanks, Nick. Awesome to be here, man. Really excited to have you, man. So for people who aren't 100% familiar with your story yet, I know you're uh, you're actually kind of new to the podcast circuit, so you really haven't been sharing it that much. So I feel honored. I think I'm like one of the first three you've done, if I've been kind of following yeah, yeah, a little exactly, bit. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, 
you know, I was out sharing my story with some other investors in this organization I belong with. And, and some guy reached out and he's like, hey, John, man, you really need to share that story. I was like, man, I don't have that much to share. You know, he's like, no, you need to tell your story from what you've come from and, and what you've been through. So uh, as of, yeah, I think I reached out to you in January. I was like, Look, listen, Nick, I'm, I'm, ready to, I'm ready to share my story. I'm ready to put it out there, get a little uncomfortable. So yeah, I'm, I'm happy to be here, man. Sick, man. So give, give a little bit of a background. I'm 22 years in construction, got a home inspection business for over the last 10 years or so. And now we were just talking about kind of the last three years snowballing in, but let's, let's kind of backtrack too to how you got there and how this journey kind of progressed. Yeah. So, I mean, I'll take you way back to, uh, you know, growing up in Queens. I wasn't always a Long Islander. I, I grew up in Queens. Uh, one of four. Podcast is over. I thought this was a oh, Long Island. <laughs> <laughs> I love Long Island. Listen, I was in a very small area of Queens called Belrose, which was, there's actually a Facebook page called Belrose is Queens. Cause people who say you're in Belrose, that's not part of Queens. That's part of Long Island. The other side of Jamaica Avenue or Jericho Turnpike was Nassau County. Okay. So that gives you a little bit of relevance there. Uh, but yeah, grew up in, you know, a uh, blue collar working household, one of four, uh, my parents had to refinance their house in order to put me to a good high school. You know, the high school over there wasn't ideal. So me and my siblings were able to go to a private high school and they had to grind their way just to get us through, uh, private school. Uh, so money was always tight. Money was always an issue in my household. Um, I remember my mother, my father worked for the city of New York. My mother was a um, stay-at-home mom. And then there just wasn't enough scrap around. So my mom had to go out and start cleaning houses. And I remember taking off from school because I wanted to go out and work. I was more about working than school. School wasn't, uh, it didn't resonate with me. So I would go clean houses with my mother. And that's where I kind of gained my work ethic and understood what a hard day's work looked like. Lemonade stands, you know, shoveling snow, you know, trading baseball cards. That was my thing when I was a kid. And uh, so I always had that work ethic. Uh, you know, fast forward, didn't do great in school, did good enough to pass, played baseball in school, and then didn't want to go to college. My father's like, do a year in college, see if you don't like it. Um, you don't have to go. So I went to a community college, paid for it myself. And uh, yeah, just got out in the workforce right away. Was working two jobs at the age of 17 years old. Uh, grinding, grinding, got into the union uh, around the age of 22, working for the working for uh, local unions in New York City. And, you know, in the beginning, it was great because, you know, working with your hands, uh, getting pride and pride and craftsmanship and enjoying what I did every day. But I also saw where guys were, you know, in their 50s and 60s still doing it. They weren't enjoying it as much. Right. I was young. My back was good. My knees were good. I was ready to go. These guys were kind of burnt out. And I was like, is that going to be me when, you know, I'm that age? So I knew like I had to figure out something uh, to get me out before I got burnt out from the job. A buddy of mine gave me Rich Dad Poor Dad at the age of 23, changed my mindship on how money works and, and basically the opportunities that are out there. Right. And started buying single family properties in Pennsylvania at the age of 24 years old while living in my parents' basement, working a full-time job in a city and making decent money, right? So bought a house a year for the first three years, um, then got super ambitious, bought a duplex in Queens and kind of really learned the hard way there. I, it was a duplex that needed a complete gut renovation, about $150,000 at this point. I did it all myself. I financed it myself. I renovated it myself. I tried to sell it myself. Um, the market fell apart in 2007 into eight. The house got broken into, vandalized. So I had to reset and it was, it was a punch in the face. I mean, you know, you hear, you hear this, the saying from Mike Tyson, you get punched in the face. It's how quick you get up. And it took me a couple of days to get up. And I was like, I, I had one of those epiphanies, like, you know, why me? Why is this happening to me? I'm just trying to make a living. I'm trying to get a little bit more. Uh, but it happened. We got through it. And because the market changed, I had to rent it out. So I ended up being a local landlord and in New York, which is a lot more difficult because New York laws aren't super friendly towards landlords. So I had a very difficult time with that, but I, I held it for five years uh, then once I got married, I wasn't making any money on it. I was, I was just paying the bills. I had all the carrying costs. When tenants wouldn't pay the rent, I had to pay the note on it. 
So it was like, how am I going to make money in this business? You know, I, so I, I, I got frustrated with that. I ended up selling that property and went back and stuck with my W2 job. I was like, all right, real estate's just not for me. And at this point, uh, you know, I was, I was a full-time journeyman, again, making really good money in the, uh, it wasn't fulfilling. So I had to figure out, like, I knew real estate was my way of exiting the rat race, but how to make it into a business. The reason I was in it is because I was handy. I had a little bit of capital. I enjoyed it, but it wasn't a business. So I went out and started networking. And that's when I first found out about syndications and multifamily and putting together teams and structures. And that's the, that's when the light bulb went off. And I, I jumped into a syndication in Covington, Kentucky as an LP. And uh, from there, I took exactly what they were doing in Kentucky. I brought that to Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania, where I had a couple of sing single family rentals and started buying duplexes and triplexes and scaled my business, took on a business partner that I met at a networking event and he was able to bring capital. And, you know, we fast forwarded up to, uh, up to getting my portfolio large enough where I could retire from my W2 job. And I was able to retire in 2019 from the city of New York. And I, I left this part out, but I became from, from being a union carpenter, I became a civil servant employee. So a civil servant employee of New York City, um, you have your, you get vested for your medical benefits and your pension, medical after 10 years, pension after five years. So I was literally serving a sentence for 10 years so I can get my medical. And on my 10 year anniversary, last time punching a clock and the next chapter of my life was on. I love that, man. Congrats. It's a sick story. Thank you. Appreciate that. That's awesome, man. I mean, you're really like, you're doing what everybody wishes they went back and did off. I would have bought a few houses back then when I was younger. And, you know, I tell everybody like, you don't have to be rich tomorrow, start to build something up so you can eventually make enough income from your investments that it will take over what you're making at your nine to five job. And at some point you look at it, you go, it's not worth me getting up and going to work for less than I've already had for my passive investments, man. So you literally followed the path that everybody looks back and wishes that they did. So congrats on actually pulling the trigger on that. Yeah, I appreciate it. But you know, it, it's that sacrifice, right? Everybody wants it, but what do you want to sacrifice? So what did I sacrifice? I sacrificed driving around a piece of crap car, not going to steakhouses, not going to the clubs with my buddies, you know, living that lifestyle um, of saving, saving, saving. You know, I was, I was a rich dad. I was a Robert Kiyosaki guy. And then I was a little bit of Dave Ramsey, right? So I had the budgets in place. I was, I was wise with my money and I just, I don't believe in waste, right? I don't want to waste my time. I don't want to waste my money. So I sacrificed a lot uh, to build that, to build a portfolio and, and grinded knowing that there was a light, right? There's no instant, there's no instant gratification in buy and hold real estate. You know, you don't get rich quick, you build wealth slowly. And, and that's the path I'm on. I agree with that hundred percent. And I think another thing that you did, that's awesome that I, I hear a lot of people ask is sometimes if I'm like teaching students or I'm talking to groups, they'll start to go, well, you know, how come the realtor doesn't go and buy this house? Or how come the contractor doesn't just fix it up and sell it himself? If, if they all know these things, why, why wouldn't the county, if they're taking back the tax lien, just take the deed and fix this? But people don't make that transition for whatever reason it is, but you did with that background. So I'm interested to see, like, was, was watching, did, was there any point where you were maybe working construction for people who you saw kind of flipping properties and made money? Or was it literally just the book and you went, I already have this construction background. I'm just going to kind of go in and, you know, start sorting the back. Yeah. I mean, unfortunately, nobody in my direct network was doing it. Uh, but I, you know, this was a time where, you know, home improvement shows were coming out. And, and I mean, at that point, there was no bigger pockets, right? There was no forms you can go on to when I first started. I just knew I had a passion for real estate. You know, I love the way houses were built. I, I worked for... I worked for a general contractor for a little while when I was like 14 years old and I saw what kind of money he made and that's what got me into the, the trade business. But yeah, it was, it was just wanting um, assets, right? It was that book. And, and when I said assets, I, I didn't know anything about the stock market, but I knew about real estate, but I didn't know how to make it into a business until I became intentional about learning how to make it into a business. So yeah, unfortunately, nobody in my direct network was, was flipping houses or had even a real estate portfolio. And even to this day, Nick, like I don't have any friends or family that owned more than one house. So, and, and I tell them what I'm doing and they saw me, they saw me leave. 
a W-2 job because of real estate, and they still can't get over, I, I, I guess I call it a limiting belief, the fact of the power of real estate. So, uh, and, I, and I, I don't convince people, you know, I just proof of concept. I just go out and do it. And then if they want to ask me questions, so be it. But which is one of the reasons I don't do podcasts. I, I felt like if my local community would feel it's very braggadocious, right? But I also feel like there's value to be heard when somebody could potentially be stuck in a job where they hate and feel like I'm stuck. There's no way of me getting out. Uh, you know, funny story. When I, when I left my job and they had a retirement party for me, I was the youngest guy at the table and the guys around me, I had empathy for because they were just stuck. They were like, well, what am I going to do? You know, they're just waiting to retire and collect their pension, but they have another 30 years to live after they, after they leave work and they had no plan. And, you know, I kind I tried to share it with them, but you know, they weren't open to it. And he's like, well, I can't do that. I don't understand that. I don't have that kind of money. And, you know, all these, all these, why they couldn't do it and, and not opening up to all the potential of how they could do it. But, you know, that's, that's, that's a problem with, I would say, 90% of the people out there, they just don't want to figure out how they can do it. They just want to say they can't do it. And the minute you say you can't, you won't. If you say maybe I can, then you have a chance, right? Man, I could not agree with you more. And I was going to kind of get into the mindset stuff a little bit later on, but I, I think it's such a huge piece for, for a few reasons. One of the things that you just said about sharing your story, when I first was getting into this, I was so depressed about the accident that happened to me and my financial situation and my health situation. And I was just down, 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 down. And I started looking for something else. Rich Dad, Poor Dad was the thing that initially I read that like triggered, okay, there's a better way out there. And then I went to a bunch of seminars. And when I started hearing some of the speakers, they were there for them more than they were for the crowd and kind of teaching them. And it, it kind of twisted me up and it never made me feel like I could do it. And then one of the speakers finally started breaking down like kind of the same thing you went through where I was like, I'm on Long Island. It's competitive. It's high priced. I don't have any money. I don't have an experience. Everybody's telling me this won't work here. I'm very discouraged. I'm very intimidated. And then I started to learn about these other markets like the Georgias and the Pennsylvanias. And you go, okay, well, I, I can get a house for $50,000 here and put 20 and it's worth 150. Make Maybe this is something I can do. And just having that hope of like, okay, like this is something for me to go after this is something I feel like there's a chance of me actually accomplishing made all the difference in the world for me to make that mental switch of like, there's something better out there. I don't have to wake up every day and hate my life. Like there's a light at the end of the tunnel. And I feel like that's what people for whatever reason steal from each other. And I think it's just such a terrible thing. And you know, when I, when I teach classes or I work with investors or I talk to people, it amazes me how they showed up there They'll bring people with them from their from their life, or somebody will bring them with them. Like, hey, come to this class, or come learn about this, or come read this book. And then those people will discourage them to go back to what they were doing. And I don't know what it is about that, but I feel like just giving somebody the hope of somebody else that's been doing construction or living on Long Island or trying to buy their first rental and now something happened to it and they feel like they'll never get past it. To hear that that's where you were, and then that you built up to this massive portfolio, were able to walk away. For all the people that might listen to it and be like, ah, he's bragging, he's cocky, whatever. If there's one person that goes, that guy just gave me hope to like live another day and get up to, to fight another day to, for a better life for my family and for my friends and for my future. How do you not take that shot? It's so true. Um, you know, and it's, there is risk involved. There's risk involved in anything. There's risk involved in depending on one income, right? Especially in this day and age, what, what COVID did to a lot of people in their careers and their jobs, like depending on one income is the most riskiest thing. Uh, but it, it's so I like during my journey of getting out of W2 world, like I completely unplugged from nonsense. Like I'm a big Dean Graziosi guy. So I unplugged from news, sports talk radio, and I plugged into podcasts. You know, I plugged into podcasts heavily and back and forth. I had an hour and a half commute back and forth to work each way. So I had time between audiobooks and podcasts. I just pumped myself with that information daily. And then uh, I didn't touch on it yet. And going, going back to mindset, uh, in 2017, I had an opportunity to, I, I, had, I had a little bit of success and I wanted to get a little more traction. So I reached out to a few different uh, mentorship programs to find out like, you know, how can I up my game in real estate? Spoke with them. And then I spoke with somebody on Brendan Bouchard's team who was a life coach. And Brendan Bouchard's uh, life coach, he told me basically, he's like, John, it's, it sounds like a great opportunity. Sounds like you're super passionate about real estate, but if your mind's not right, your business is going to fail. And I knew I was carrying around baggage. I knew I was telling myself the same story. 
I knew I was telling myself, you're a carpenter, you're a carpenter, you're a carpenter. You came from a, a, a blue collar household. You came from a lower income household. Uh, you'll never be this, you'll never be that. And I literally unpacked all that stuff in six months and got real with myself. Like it was, it was uncomfortable for me to have to do homework about my childhood, my parents, um, my, my goals, my ambition, and then to sit down at work in a carpenter shop and talk to this guy who was in Utah when my colleagues are in the back, you know, talking about <laughs> where they're going for lunch, you know, how much overtime this weekend. And it was, and they, and they kind of, you know, they got on me a little bit, but I was focused on, I was focused on my journey and my journey only, and wasn't concerned about all the negativity around me. Right. And which is hard to get focused. Um, I was motivated. Then I was disciplined and the discipline helped me get there. Right. The motivation gets you started, but the discipline gets you to where you need to go. And that discipline still sticks with me today. That's outstanding, man. And, you know, again, I, I talk to successful people every single day. Some of the most successful people that I've ever met in my life, they go back to all this stuff's great. I can lay out a blueprint. I can give you a checklist. But if you don't have the mindset part of this, it's never going to work for you. And I think it's, it's so crazy because the newer investors that come in, it's the last thing they want to hear. Oh, I just need this piece. And I'm like, okay, well, you want to learn and copy some of the most successful people in the world. And all of them say that this part's important, but you think that it's not important for you at all. And then you go into like, there's all these things that can go right or wrong. You have to invest in yourself. There's always going to be education and mentors and all these things. And then people don't want to even spend $500 on themselves. And, you know, and I, and I tell them like, if this is what you want to do, if you want to be an entrepreneur, if you want to be a business owner, if you want to be a real estate investor, it's a lifetime of growing mentally, physically, coaching, financially, spiritually, mindset. Like I'll never stop investing in those things. So it always blows me away when people are like, well, I don't want to spend the money on myself. I'm like, well, bad news is this isn't going to be the last check you write to make, you know, like it's, it, yeah. I remember the first time I, I like forked over a big check for training and I was like, this will be like the, the thing I'll do this one time. And then I'll know everything. And now I'm like every quarter I'm making like 10, 20, $30,000 investments in myself or my circles and stuff. So um, how was it for you when you first decided to like pull the trigger? Because people listening to that might think I'm not going to pay somebody to like get the emotional side or the mental side out of that, or I'm not going to pay somebody for, for all these things. And again, all the successful people, I know they, they do it constantly, but that first one sometimes is really hard to justify. Maybe not to yourself, but maybe you have a husband or a spouse or a wife or a friend or a partner that's kind of like, no, 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 like you're not going to do that. So yeah. I'm interested to see how that first check went for you. No, exactly. And I, I remember the feeling of it. I remember when I asked him, how much is it going to cost? And I remember hearing, and I was like, wait a second, thinking <laughs> about, okay, I can put a down payment on a house with that kind of money. Do I really need this? But yeah, it's, it's being vulnerable, right? It's like, all right, I don't have it all figured out and I need to start reinvesting in myself. Like I, I didn't invest in my education. I didn't invest in my education in, in, in going to college. I invested in myself with working, working, working. And then this was like the first time, all right, either it's self-love or vulnerability, you need to invest in yourself. And that's exactly what that's exactly what I attributed to. Because I had the conversation with my wife and I had to tell her how much it cost. She's like, well, what do you get for that? I was like, I get somebody <laughs> to basically coach me through this and, and help me unpack my life and help me figure out give me clarity, give me some goals to work towards and, and so on. So uh, yeah, it, I, I work hard for my money and I don't want to just throw my money away. So it, it kept me accountable. Then I was like, all right, I'm making this financial investment. Now I have to be accountable to this coach. I have to show up. I have to do the homework. Otherwise I'm letting myself down. And the minute you start letting yourself down is the minute you start um, not disrespecting yourself, but really not, um, getting that confidence that you need in order to be successful, right? Showing up every day builds that confidence and that confidence will help you build that business and build that lifestyle you want. Yeah, man. I tell people all the time, it's very easy to get into business. It's very hard to stay in business. 
you know, get in for that first day, but you know, you want to be around five, 10, 15 years. These are the things you have to do. And I know you had touched on the accountability part of that. And that's something where I think you said you're part of an accountability pod and that where like every day you have to report to somebody. I think that that's freaking genius, man. Like holding your feet to the fire because I hate tracking, but I know how important it is. And I know you were kind of saying the same thing. I'd love to hear you touch on that. And then we can start to dig into kind of the nitty gritty of how you structure your deals and where you're investing and all the numbers. Absolutely. So what basically happened was, you know, back in 2017, ended up going with a life coach instead of a real estate mentor. Uh, just last year, I ended up signing up with a mentor. Um, it's Jake and Gino, Real Bauer Profits, tremendous group, all focused on multifamilies, you know, a lot of big players there all throughout the country. And again, a big check, but now it's I always held my property manager accountable. I held my contractors accountable. I held other investors accountable, but no one was holding me accountable. No one was helping me up my game or think bigger. So I was kind of stuck in my small playground. I really needed to get around people and players that were doing bigger deals, thinking bigger, thinking different and getting a little more creative than I was. Otherwise I would be in the same place. I wouldn't have the traction I do now. So with, with that comes, yeah, it comes getting put into, uh, you have accountability coach, you have a deal coach, you have accountability pods with other people within the network. And basically it's, we meet every week or every two weeks. And with that, you're, you're talking about your, your successes, your failures, and your next objectives. And that next, in, in two weeks, you're going to get followed up on it. Like, well, you didn't do this, but why didn't you do it? You know, and it's like, I right, feet to the fire. Well, let me think, why didn't I do it? Oh, so I went to go hang out with my boys on Saturday and I took my wife to dinner on Wednesday and I did this and I did this and I did this. So you did all those things that you wanted to do, but nothing to build your business. Are you really serious about building the business or you just think it's a great idea, right? So yeah, it, it, it's difficult, but it's a necessity, you know? Uh, and it's, it's getting around those people that will, you know, build you up to the point where you, won't think small anymore, right? You're like, well, why can't you take down a 50 unit? You know, why do you have to focus on five units or 10 units? Why can't you take down a 50 unit? Well, because of money. Well, why can't you raise money, right? So it's, it's constantly being challenged on that. And I enjoy challenging myself, but I've never had been challenged by anybody else. And it's a game changer. Agree, man. I think that that's outstanding news. And pivoting now to the actual real estate side, starting with the residential stuff. So let's say like the maybe maybe like five, 10 units and under before we jump into the big stuff. What was your model? Is it still your model? Are you doing smaller projects? You're only doing bigger stuff now. And what did the single family side look like? Was it all buying holes? Were you doing flips? Was your strategy to hold long term and then refi out and reinvest? So talk through some of that initial structure and then we'll talk about jumping into the bigger deals. Yeah, definitely. So the entire gamut, right? I I did start off in flipping. Uh, well, it was buy and hold first, then a couple of flips to feed some buy and holds. And then it was executing the burst strategy, right? On duplexes, it was buying it in cash, renovating it in cash, stabilizing it, then refinancing and then repeating that. And that was, that was the eye opener, right? That is when you have proof of concept where you can get in and out of a property. Um, when I say in and out, when I say buy it and get it stabilized to the point where you can bring debt on it, that's where you have proof of concept where you can now go raise capital. And I need to do that on my own in order to prove it to other people that it can, it can exist. Right. So I had to, you know, take some money out of my retirement and scrap together everything I had and put it all into this. Like, all right, you're leveraging your own capital in order to leverage other people's capital moving forward. So I got into the duplex space and, and did a few duplexes then got into a quad and then got into a five unit, and nowadays, yeah, we don't buy anything smaller than a five unit. And even now we don't buy anything smaller than a 25 unit, right? So it's economies of scale, which is why we want to do it. Also have the access to be on the raised capital and, and do something that I just got into recently. I've done one-on-one um, -on -one JVs, right? Joint ventures with, with one other partner where we both bring in 50% of the capital and we both have our, um, our obligations to the business, right? And we know each other's roles. Uh, now we're getting to a point where we're bringing in three or four partners and now we're splitting up the equity according to what the responsibilities are in this operation. So yeah, going forward now, we're looking at 20 to 25 doors or more. Um. 
If you have been kicking yourself that you didn't start investing in real estate sooner, whether you're beginner, intermediate, or advanced, any way you're looking to get it on a residential, commercial, land development, wholesale, and fix and flips, whatever it is, let's find a way to get you involved in some projects, get you some properties, whether you want to sell some properties to me, whether you want to buy some properties from me, whether residential, fix and flip, cash flow, multifamily, whatever it is you're looking for, let's figure out a way to get you involved or find a way for us to partner up on some deals. Go to www.nicknicknick.com. Go on the consultation tab and figure out how to schedule an appointment to talk about where you fit in if you are not sure. Or you can just reach out to me on any of my social media channels. If you go on www.nicknicknick.com slash links, you will see all the different ways to connect with me and figure out how we can start to work together, make it happen. Everybody that invests in real estate always just says they wish they did it sooner. Best time to start is today. That's awesome, man. I'm taking some notes here on some of the stuff. You keep triggering all these other things that I want to talk to you about. So when you talk about the birth strategy, I know that's a very attractive strategy to people. How are you setting up that initially? Were you getting hard money and finding distressed properties or were you pulling your own cash and then refinancing out? And I know you said at that point you could have proof of concept and go back to somebody. So, you know, was it now I'm borrowing cash knowing that I am going to have my exit? I've done it all as well. So initial one was my capital. Second one was hard money. Hard money is difficult. And if you don't understand hard money, research it and figure out who you're doing business with. I mean, I would always say in this business, get referrals, you know, understand uh, the highs and lows of certain lenders because there's a ton of them out there. And some of them look to take properties and some of them look to just feed you to death. <laughs> so I, yeah, I, the second one I did was with hard money. Uh, the third one, I took on a partner who still is my partner in certain deals. He was able to bring some capital to it. And uh, yeah, from here on in, we've been basically staying away from hard money and it's all private money, right? Big difference between hard money and private money, you know, high level, it's anywhere from 12 to 10 to 14 points, I'd say, um, 10 to 14% interest, two to four points. Private money is usually eight to 10 with no points, but it's usually friends and family lending on that. That's the route I prefer to go. And I've been lucky enough to go that route moving forward. Uh, but hard money is definitely a way for certain people to get, to get their foot in the door. Yeah, I agree a thousand percent. It's a, it's a natural path of progression. And I love the responsibility you say, because I don't think people do what you do by saying, I'm going to make sure it works first before I go and involve friends and family. And I, I see that get sticky all the time. I tell everybody like, just because your girlfriend's dad has money doesn't mean that you're, you can go borrow it and to flip a house that you've never done before. It's crazy, but they're, they're willing to do that. It's kind of nuts. And on the, on the refinance side, did you wind up hitting any bumps and bruises around that time? Cause I know like when I was trying to do it initially, it was when the market turned and the lending literally completely changed from the time I bought the property to stabilize it to six months later when it was stabilized the lending landscape just looked completely different. So I had to get very creative, but did you go find a, a lender first that would tell you what the LTV was going to be to refinance or did it just work out because you were still kind of doing W2 stuff? No. Uh, so I didn't find anybody first. I, once I got it stabilized, then I in the process of getting it stabilized, I knew what the ARV was going to be. Uh, you know, I, I did my own due diligence. I did the comps. I knew what my rent roll was going to be. So I presented it to a local lender out there. And my challenge was the appraisal, right? The appraisal, it's a wild, wild west. You <laughs> never know who you're going to get. So I literally had three appraisals on, on the first burr I did. So they came back. It's funny. So I bought the property for $99,000. I put about $25,000 into it. And this is a duplex. That's why Pennsylvania was wonderful. It still is, but things have obviously shifted. Bought it for $99,000, put $25,000 into it. My ARV was $175,000. The first appraisal came in for 119. The second appraisal came in for 190. I was like, we're good. The bank goes, no, John, it's too much of a variance between the two numbers. We need to get a third. And the third one came in at 170, you know? So we were fine. And this, Nick, this was within three months. Like, how are you doing this? What I was able to do, and, and thank you to Bigger Pockets for this, I was able to go on to Bigger Pockets and punch in how to dispute an appraisal. And I literally took a template and I filled it in with the information and filled it in with my own comps and submitted that. And that was their eye opener. Because it's difficult. It's difficult to fight against an appraisal. I mean, anyone oh, yeah. trying to do it, it's difficult. And I was able to do it. And I didn't realize what a success it was until I realized I've heard 
since how many people have had a problem with it. So that was definitely a victory for me. And yeah, we were able, I was able to get 100% of my money out of that deal. And I've actually refinanced it again since. So uh, the returns on that are infinite. And that's the power of the birth strategy. But it didn't happen day one. It was me pumping money in, pumping money in, pumping money in. And then, you know, all those seeds that I planted eventually came back my way. And now it's, now it's just, it's a cash cow. There's no, no, none of my money into it, which is the super powerful part of real estate, which a lot of people don't want to, um, don't want to wait that long, right? They don't want, they want the instant gratification. They want the flips where they're making their 40, 50, $60,000, or they want to hit a home run on their first deal. It's just, it's, it doesn't work these days. Yeah. I tell everybody, you know, swing, swing for base hits. And if you knock one out of the park every now and then you're in good shape, but when you hold out for that unicorn deal, you're going to be waiting forever. And I think the people that are paying attention saw that during the pandemic, when everything got shut down, the guys that had those houses they bought a while ago, that wound up becoming their umbrella because it was raining hard for a couple of years and there's nothing coming in. And you go, you know what, this, this property that didn't look all that appealing or sexy five, 10 years ago now is able to literally pay all of my bills. I could sell it. I could refinance it and figure out for the next two years, what my next step is. And that's huge. It is. It is. I always looked at it when, when my properties were on cash flow, it was a tax shelter, right? It was a write-off. It was a tax shelter. And that's the way I always looked at it. So it didn't really frustrate me that it wasn't cash flowing. Uh, you know, there's so many ways of making money on buy and hold real estate where again, people just don't understand all the, all the complexities of it. But the fact that it's just a tax shelter and it's paying down my principal, building up some equity, eventually the market is going to pivot. But you have to be patient enough to wait for that market to pivot. Yeah, man, I agree. Real estate's very forgiving over time, which I think is awesome. And you know, pivoting now to what we're going to talk about for some of the bigger stuff here when you're doing some multifamily, that's another thing where as residential kind of went up and down, depending on the volatility of where you were, what you paid for, what was happening, those middle-class, middle-income apartments seem to be very recession-proof assets, which was something that really appealed to me when I started looking at commercial and understanding the power of what one house can do and then going, well, wait a minute, I can sell one house and put that as a down payment and now on like a 10 unit or a 15 unit. And then now watch what that starts to do exponentially bigger. So what was it that sparked you jumping into bigger deals? Because I know people think mentally that's too big. I can't get into that. And it tends to be a misconception. So I'd love to hear what was it that made you believe, okay, I'm ready for a shift to get into bigger deals. And what did your first like big apartment complex look like? Yeah, it was, it was basically the people I surrounded myself with the, the Rod Khalif, the Michael Blancs of the world, just telling, you know, once you, once you understood how real estate operated, it's, it's then figuring out, all right, how do I scale this? I can go out and buy 30 single family homes with 30 roofs, with 30 boilers, or I could buy one building with one roof, <laughs> with a couple of boilers, right? So it's economies of scale, going to one place to collect rent, going to one place to plow snow, Pennsylvania, we get a lot of snow out there. So, uh, it was, it was being able to scale and scale quickly. Cause again, Nick, I had a goal of getting out of my job. So I reverse engineered it. I needed this much passive income. So therefore I need this much passive income. I need this many doors and each door has to cash flow this much money. So I was able to reverse engineer what my game plan was. And then, all right, this is the type of deal I'm looking for. So my first big one was a 20 unit also in Pennsylvania, major value add mom and pop owner, owned it for 20 years. Basically, you could fog a mirror, you can rent my unit, had the place, uh, I'd say 80% leased up, but no one was playing anywhere close to market. And the place needed a ton of CapEx. Uh, so the specifics on that, 20 unit, I bought it for 634. Okay, $634,000. I put $250,000 into it. Uh, once I got it stabilized, I, at that point, I repositioned 12 of the tenants, which means I got them out of there either forcefully or just raised the rents on to the point where they got out, did a full renovation on all those units. Major CapEx include three roofs, um, converting some oil heat to electric baseboard heat, right? Because I don't want to be responsible for tenants having the thermostat at 80 degrees and the windows open. Now it's electric. <laughs> now you deal with it. See how, see what kind of temperature you're comfortable with. So yeah, that was a full reposition, uh, 634 purchase, 250 in, 
I, I refinanced it early last year. It came in at 1.25. So another successful burn. That was the biggest one to date I did. And that one I did on my own. Uh, I use local lender and I use a local lender as a construction loan as well. So I was heavily leveraged into it, but I was able to oversee the renovations myself and basically GC it. Sometimes I went out there and got on the tools. I mean, I, I have no problem putting sweat equity in properties. I have no problem going out there because even this day and age, and, and this is one of my, I guess you want to call it a superpower. This day is super difficult to get contractors. So when contractors wouldn't show up or they were just dragging, I would get out there on my tools for two or three days and say, guys, I can do this myself. I want you to do it. I want to pay you to do it, but you have to do it in a timely fashion and you have to do it on budget and you have to give me a certain amount of quality. If you don't, I'll come out here. I have a vacation house down the block. <laughs> don't tempt me. So I, I, I literally would go out there quite often and, and put some sweat equity into it or just keep the guys moving along. And uh, yeah, I, I'm a true believer in that. You know, Now I don't do it anymore because I have a team, because I've scaled, because I understand the best use of my time. But to get to, get to that point, I, I was able to put some time into it myself. And uh, yeah, we executed this, we executed the business plan on time, a little bit over budget, but I, I couldn't be happy with it. That's awesome, man. And you, you, you mentioned a couple of terms that I don't know if people are familiar with, but even people that have rentals, it blows me away when they don't understand what deferred maintenance and CapEx is and why they should be budgeting for those things down the road. So for, for somebody who's listening, this is all new stuff. Can you explain kind of what the difference is there and why that's an important thing to factor in? Yeah, it, it, it's super important. Now, this is, this is an older property. Uh, this property was built in the mid-1900s, right? Yeah. So with that being said, you're going to have older plumbing in place, older electric in place, older roofs, right? So that's all going to be considered your CapEx. All of your larger expenses are going to be CapEx. Deferred maintenance is basically they haven't replaced the carpet for 20 years. They haven't replaced the cabinets or the appliances. So when you get into a property, you have to realize what it's going to take, one, to get rent ready, and one it's going to take to get premium rents. So you will find deferred maintenance on mom and pop owned buildings that they've owned for 15, 20 years, because what you'll find is once they have these properties stabilizing cash flow and they're just pulling the equity back out of it, they're not reinvesting the equity. But when they're not reinvesting the equity, they're also not raising the rents. So that's where the value add comes in. If you come and you put some improvements into it, you put some CapEx, now you can justify raising rents. If you try to go buy a building and you just want to raise rents because you're raising rents, you're just giving us bad names. You're being a slumlord, right? If you're making them live in unsafe, undesirable conditions, and you're trying to get market rents, you're doing the wrong thing by your tenants. And that's the last thing I want to do. I, 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 I'm an ethical person. I take pride in ownership. Uh, I want to provide safe, clean, affordable housing. And that's absolutely my objective. And I haven't pivoted from that from day one. Ever wanted to play the drums? Or do you want to get your kids some drum lessons to burn some of that energy while they are all locked up? Take advantage of a free drum lesson with one of the tri-state area's most respected drummers, Dan LaMagna. Dan LaMagna has played in such bands as Crown of Thorns, Suicide City, Biohazard, The Real McKenzie's, Sworn Enemy, The Walls of Jericho. He's played all over the world and he's also endorsed by such companies as DW, Vader, and Sabian. Dan has taught tons of people from all different age groups and all different music styles. He can teach adults, kids, advanced, beginner, any types of styles from metal, all different types of percussion, whatever style you want. Get a free drum lesson today from Dan. All you need to do is text the word drummer, D-R-U-M-M-E-R, to 833-632-0585. Again, text the word drummer, D-R-U-M-M-E-R, to the number 833-632-0585 for your free online drum lesson. And you know, what you're talking about there is interesting because People don't wrap their heads around, well, why wouldn't this person raise the rents? Why wouldn't this person reinvest that money? But it goes back to what you said earlier about the discipline is they get that money, they use that money for other stuff. And then 10, 15, 20 years go by and the roof's $20,000 and the water heaters and the that stuff adds up. And most people don't have 20, 30, $40,000 around. And now you have tenants in there that are going, my roof's linking, my heat doesn't work, my windows don't support. That stuff has to get changed. So at some point they go, well, I don't have the money for that. 
this person's not paying anymore. John just called me and he's interested in buying my house. He's got the money to do it. You know what? We already refinanced. We already made our money out 20 years ago. Take it. And like, that's kind of where that stuff comes in is the people that don't have the discipline now, we wind up making money on later. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, it's changed a little bit because the market has, obviously it's a little frothy now and it's really ticked up and people are trying to get a premium for them being uh, terrible landlords. <laughs> I mean, it's, there's still money to be made, but people are trying to make money for the asset that they let get depreciated, you know I mean? And it's, it's a game, but eventually somebody's going to get caught holding it. Uh, but yeah. It's so when you, when you look at these landlords, the reason they don't raise rents, because they raise rents, the tenant's going to leave and then they have to fill it again. And if they try to fill it again, they're probably going to do some improvements. They want to avoid all that, right? They want to be as disconnected from the property as possible in most ways. So yeah, they don't want to rock a ship. And, but understand when you're underwriting a property or a multifamily deal, you say, man, rents are $300 under. There's a reason. And the reason usually is because that unit hasn't been renovated in 20 or 30 years. So with that rump bump, put a $10,000 renovation budget in there too. Otherwise <laughs> you're, you're just, you're, you're just dreaming. Prolong the inevitable with band-aids until everybody, you know, it's a, it's an imaginary scenario. <laughs> so you also talked about uh, LPs and GPs. So I know you have some that you're the main guy on, some you're partnering on. So talk a little bit about what those are and how that structure works for your business. Absolutely. So limited partner, an LP is basically, which is, which is the way I started in the syndication business. And I still do some of it with, with some of my, um, my objectives, the LP put money into a deal. It's completely passive. At that point, you don't have a say on rent increases, renovations or anything. You just get your distributions, be it monthly, quarterly, or annually, depending on how it's structured. A GP, a general partner, now you have a little bit more say. Now you have a little bit more responsibility as well. Responsibility usually gets split up amongst how many GPs there are, be it the asset management, be it the overseeing the property management, be it um, overseeing rents. There's many different buckets that you can fill when you're a GP. Loan guarantor, finding the deal, deal structure. Uh, right now, the way... The way, I the way I structure it and moving forward, um, I'm looking at moving into the syndication process where I will be a GP on a deal. Uh, we have a few LOIs out right now on some deals, letter of intent LOI. Uh, we have some LOIs out. I was on a sponsorship team, so I helped find the deal. I helped underwrite the deal. I'll help raise, raise capital for it. And at that point, as a GP, I'll go out to my network, They'll become LPs, put money into the deal. We'll put out a PPM, some webinars on it, some calls on it, educate them on the deal, the pros, the cons, what the renovation looks like, what the debt structure looks like, what the CapEx looks like, uh, what our exit strategy is, right? Exit strategy is either we're going to refinance it or we're going to sell it. At refinance or sale, this is how much money you'll get back. These are the splits. You're usually as a LP, there's a preferred rate of return, seven, eight, nine percent, depending on the GP. And then there's also splits. Splits of the equity into the deal, 70-30 usually, sometimes 80-20. Again, all deal specific. So when you're doing those now, what's uh like how are you paying it out? Are you are you getting some conventional or non-conventional loans and then having the private investors kind of put the gap in there so that you're not relying hundred percent on private funds for that? Exactly. GPs put in a certain percentage of it. Then what we do is we usually buy value add property. So we're going to put bridge debt, which is also known as short-term debt, pay a little bit of a premium for that, but that's going to help us get it stabilized so that within two years and sometimes get an extension within three years, we'll be able to refinance it. So we're using a combination of GP capital, LP capital, and then debt from a lender, right? Be it a private lender, a hard money lender, a small local lender. There's many different avenues you can go down, but yeah, we bring all three of those and that's known as like a debt stack, right? So you have different stacks of where the capital is coming from. I think that that's a really interesting model, especially because when people initially look at that and they go, well, I'm buying something at a six cap. How can I possibly put my investors a nine cap? It's because it's not that long-term debt. And like you said, it's a, it's a fraction of what you need. It's not all 
at that interest rate. You know what I mean? So it kind of gets moved around and subbed out. But, you know, that's what kind of a cool thing about commercial is. On, on residential, I tell everybody it, it's more of like laws and rules. Like this is kind of what it is. But on commercial, you can be a little bit artistic. You can be creative with it. There's so many different ways to put it together, which to some people is overwhelming. But it should also be exciting because it means there's so many more ways for you to make money and make money with other people in your life. Yeah. It's so true. There, there are so many ways to structure a deal and so many ways of, of making it profitable, but it's getting creative, right? And especially this day and age, uh, you have to be super creative. There's so, it's gotten, this space has gotten so attractive because I think there's so much more education out there, right? There's so many more podcasts, Bigger Pockets is so big, social media, it's everywhere. Uh, it's just understanding it. I mean, you, you can't go in blinded, right? You have to really know who your sponsor is. You have to have somewhat of a relationship. They should have somewhat of a track record. And make sure like your goals align, right? I mean, there are some people in the business that are just looking to fee it to death, you know? <laughs> sponsors that just, because in it's something I kind of skipped over, but the sponsorship team or the GPs, they will have a fee structure in there. And that's where they'll make some of their capital as well. At acquisition, during asset management, during refinance and during exit, they're going to get a small percentage of the fees. Rightfully so, because... And LPs give a hard time about this. You don't realize how difficult it is, one, to find the deal these days, then negotiate the deal, then negotiate the terms, and then finally actually getting to close it and then executing this business plan that you've been putting together for the last six months. And this business plan usually takes about two years to execute. So it's a lot of moving parts behind the scenes and LPs don't see the type of work that goes into it. But- and, and, and that's fine. I mean, we're completely transparent. We'll have a Zoom call and we'll let you know what our fees look like. And we'll also tell you what our job looks like. And if you want to jump in, you could jump in, but it is not easy. That's a thousand percent sure. Those are facts right there. Now, as far as finding deals and stuff, what are some of the ways you guys are getting deals right now and creating leads? So the building relationships with, with uh, brokers has been number one. Uh, but brokers obviously have a lot of investors in their pocket and a lot of investors that they have to feed as well. Uh, so we've been lately doing a lot of direct to seller, uh, getting co-star lists, doing some cold calling. Some people on my team are doing cold calling ourselves. Again, not the best use of our time. We're looking to bring on a VA to take care of that. Uh, so it's in the past has been organic, organic, meaning that I bought a property from Betty. Betty told her friend, Susan, Susan told her friend, Annie. And again, they're just elderly people looking to close and close quickly here we step in. That's dried up a little bit because direct marketing. Now they're getting mailers, they're getting postcards, and they're getting phone calls as well. So we've done a lot of that. And the number one thing with newer investors, don't mislead a broker. Don't tell them you can close for all cash. Don't tell them you can close in a certain amount of time unless you know you can. If you, get, if you, if you build a relationship with a broker lying to them, you're never going to hear from them again. And they may be able to provide deals quarterly, annually. But once you burn that bridge, you're not rebuilding it, right? Because they'll just move on to the next one. There's so many of us out there. So you have to be transparent. You have to know your limitations. You have to know how much capital you can actually bring to a deal. So be transparent. It's like my buddy Jay Sherman always says, it's never about this deal. It's always about the next deal. And if you burn that bridge, there is no next deal. Exactly. Yeah, man. So th this is awesome. You know, a couple of just uh, final things here. Uh, my last question on the multifamily stuff is, so when you're going after these deals, are you looking at it more for, I need to be able to refinance out at a certain cap rate, or are you looking more at an LTV that if I'm into it for this, I know I can refinance out at X, Y, and Z, like kind of what, what's your buy box? Yeah. So it's, it's not cap rates because we don't know where cap rates are going to be. And we're in a few different markets and those cap rates are continuously moving. Um, it really comes to LTV, right? And what we're doing these days is because you know, interest rates are ticking up, we have to be super conservative knowing that we're going to be able to meet those metrics of in two years, worst case scenario, interest rates are going to be at five, five and a half percent, hopefully much less than that. Um, will this still be able to pay all investors back on top of executing this renovation budget? So we're super conservative on underwriting and making sure that when we're able to exit, we can exit because if we can't exit, then we become desperate sellers. And the last thing you want to be is a desperate seller in order to pay back your investors. So, you know, 
paying attention to the market cycles is very important and underwriting conservatively is without a doubt one of the most important things you can do. That's awesome, man. And I definitely want to give a shout out to Connects and Christian Chuli for linking us up. Another Long yes. Island guy that's out there who's just been, every time I talk to the guy, I feel like I've known him for years. We get on the phone and you got five minutes and we want to talk him for three hours. So, you know, he, he knew we were going to hit it off. So he linked us up, man. And he's just been awesome. So I appreciate him and them and definitely linking up with you. Yeah, absolutely. So I like to call this the victory lab. It's kind of like the, the little uh, tying up everything in a nice little bow and a few questions here. So the first one being, uh, what book would you recommend? So I've been through all the big ones, you know, uh, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, Think and Grow Rich. But something I read recently, which my mentor told me about was, uh, it's called The Gap and the Gain by Dan Sullivan. It's basically understanding how to handle difficult situations and keeping yourself out of the gap, right? Because in every opportunity, there's a way to have a gain, right? No matter what you're up against, you have to see the benefit of it. And a, a great example is, I'm going on vacation with my kids and I'm sitting in traffic on the cross Bronx and I'm grinding wheel and getting frustrated. I'm living in the gap. Here I am going on a beautiful vacation with my family and all I'm worried about is this half hour of traffic I'm sitting in, right? So it's being intentional about living in the game consistently. That's awesome and timely too. I think I need to hear that today. That's a great point right there. Do you have a favorite quote? I do. Uh, it's by Jim Rohn. Um, Traditional education will make you a living. A self-education will make you a fortune. I was oh. never big into school, but once I was passionate about real estate, I love getting educated on it. I absolutely do. I love being challenged on it and it just clicks. So, you know, I'm a big follower of Jim Rohn. I love all of his quotes. I actually have his quote book here on my desk and I always refer to it. Uh, I, I think he's a, a tremendous influencer. That's awesome, man. What advice would you give a younger you today? A younger me today is get out and meet people. You know, I, I'm somewhat introvert until you get to know me, but I'm not the type of person that will go up to you and typically start a conversation. Nowadays at meetups, I am because I feel like I, I was in that position when I was new to going to one of these rears. And I was the kid sitting in the back and didn't want to say anything because I had no value to bring. Now I approach them. I introduce myself and ask them what they're working on or what they're excited about and to get them out of their shell because it's intimidating going to these meetups and you have all these people talking about the deals they're working on, all the deals they closed. And here I was as a newer investor, I just read a book and now I want to invest in real estate. <laughs> and it, it can be intimidating, but you really have to get on, you really have to get used to being uncomfortable in those positions and get around people that are thinking bigger. We all have friends and childhood friends that we grew up with that all think the same way but if you want to accomplish a little bit more in your life get around the people that are doing bigger things and thinking a little bit differently and and this day and age it is so easy to do that right if you're plugged into facebook or instagram or any social media you'll see somebody talking about real estate message them see how they see how you guys can connect see how you can add value and take it from there Speaking of connecting on social media, how do people find you? How do people work with you? What's the best way to reach out? How can we help you? I pick up my cell phone when it rings, good, bad, or ugly. <laughs> so you can give me a shout on my cell. Uh, it's 516-359-0539. I'm getting more and more active on social media. It's JT Geldert, G-E-L-D-E-R-T on Instagram and John Gelder on Facebook. Awesome, man. Obviously, anybody listening, I will put all that in the show notes. You guys can connect directly. And I think last, but certainly not least, and the most important question, I think probably in podcast history at this point, best pizza on Long Island. I'm a, I'm a Queens guy, but for <laughs> me, it's Umberto's. I don't know, Umberto's and Wanto, but I was part of the original Umberto's in New High Park. Okay. So Umberto's in New High Park is still the best. And I just found out that Umberto's has the upside down Sicilian. Ah. So, All right, so, so Queens, let, let's talk New York now, boroughs. What, 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 what are your go-tos? For pizza? Yeah. I worked in Harlem, and have you ever been to Patsy's? I have not, no. I know there's a Patsy's on the east side. I don't know if it's the same one. Yeah, Patsy's is Patsy's. Okay, yeah. yeah. So Patsy's Pizza in Harlem, I think it's on 119th Street and 1st Ave. Um, it's it's a dump of a place, but it's a, it's a wood-burning uh, fire burner 
and the pizza is phenomenal. I mean, it's it's a really fine, thin crust. You can knock out a pizza on your own, so it gets a little <laughs> Yeah, there was one when I used to live on, uh, on on the east side, I think on First Day Avenue in like 70s, and the pizza just, it tastes a little different than the other ones. So like, if you like it, you kind of, that becomes your pizza. It doesn't, it, it definitely separates itself from some of the other ones for sure. Yeah, it's not a traditional Neapolitan slice, that's for sure. But it, it really depends on what your flavor is. Some people, you know, could have this conversation forever, Sicilian, Neapolitan, <laughs> thin crust, you know, Chicago deep dish. Yeah, and shout out to my buddy, Mike Rinaldi, who should be any day now, if he hasn't already, retired successfully from the New York City Police Department. I know he's been uh, kind of the 106, 107 precinct guy, and they're always all about New Park Pizza in Queens. Awesome, awesome. Nice, man. Well, dude, this has been awesome. I really appreciate you obviously bring your A-game to life and you definitely brought it to this interview. Any final thoughts before we let you go, sir? No, Nick, I really appreciate the opportunity. I mean, I've been following your podcast for a long time. I, I know you've had a lot of high performers on here, so it, it's a blessing to be on it. Man, you're a humble guy. You have an unbelievable story and a huge track record, and I look forward to sitting down and getting some pizza with you when I'm back in Long Island next month, man. Same here, Nick. Appreciate it. Have a great day, everybody. John Gelter, ladies and gentlemen.